Christ, how are we doing? Excuse me? <laughs> Go ahead and stand up. Come on, we're going to sing and worship together today. Here we go. There is a sound I love to hear. It's the sound of the Savior's robe as it walks into the room where people pray, where we hear praises
our soul this morning. Awake us to your glory, to your beauty, to what you're doing in our lives. Guys, I want us to just take a moment, take a turn, just to provide the space for us to order our hearts and our desires appropriately this morning. Advent is about the, the waiting, the longing for a Savior and if we're honest, there's a lot of situations in our life where Advent is very real all the time, year-round, where we are waiting for a Savior to show up and do something miraculous. And I want us to awake our souls to that reality of that longing this morning. It's real, and it's not to shy away from it, but let's actually press into that. Let's press into the longing, the pining for a Savior who is so real, who is going to uh, do the miraculous, and yet we still have to wait. We still wait. So Lord, help us. Emmanuel, God with us. Be with us as we wait, Lord, as we trust, as we recognize that there's promises to come, but that there's also waiting.
song always moves me so much. I remember the first time I heard it sung. I grew up in a pretty happy, clappy, charismatic church up in Wisconsin, and it was nine or ten, and it was about this time of year. And my dad, who was born and raised Lutheran, he got up one Sunday, and during the offering special, he belted this song out a cappella to 500 people. I'd never heard anything like it before, and it bowled me over. I mean, completely wiped me out. And I didn't have language for it at the time, but looking back, I know that that was the first time in my life that I had ever heard a lament, a genuine lament. And the Bible is full of lament. Lament is the language of the psalmist that they affirm, as we affirm here, that our God has come among us, that we have seen his hand and he's done mighty deeds on our behalf. And the psalmist also says, but God, we need you to do it again. We're holding all of these things in our lives. You've put some things in order, but there are so many things for us, even now, that are not yet put in order. And so we sing, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And you know, that actually is the cry of the church. From the very earliest days of the church, after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, the church began in its prayers and in its liturgy and its worship began lifting up the cry, Maranatha. You know what that means? And what we're waiting for is not just Jesus to come at the end of history, but we're waiting on Jesus to break in in the spirit and in power in our lives, even now, to renew the face of the earth, to make all things new. And so this morning, church, I want you to do this as we're in this space of worship. All of us have some place in our lives where we're saying, come Lord Jesus, we need you. And for you this morning, it might be a relationship that's gone sideways that you need a breakthrough of the spirit. For some of you, your marriage is like on the rocks and you need a breakthrough of the spirit. For others of you, there's financial breakthrough that you need. Your back is against the wall and you're crying on God. You're calling out to Jesus to help. Maybe that's you. 
Maybe you have some kind of sickness, illness in your body or something is going wrong in your frame and you need God to break through. I don't know what it is, but I want you to take that thing, whatever it is this morning, church, and I want you now physically, I want you to hold it up before the Lord. And now we're calling on the Lord Jesus to come. We're making the prayer of the church our prayer. We're saying, come Lord Jesus. Would you say that, church? And as you're holding that thing, I want you to hold it up high before the Lord. I want you to do it with all of your faith and all of your longing. I want you to make God see that thing that you've been contending for. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. We're praying for a breakthrough of the spirit in every relationship that we are in. In our marriages, Lord Jesus. And with our children, Lord Jesus. Between brothers and sisters and between friends, we say, come Lord Jesus. Over every physical body in this room that needs healing, backs, knees, people that received a diagnosis this week that has them scared, senseless. Church, would you lift up the cry? Would you say, come Lord Jesus? Say aloud, church. Come Lord Jesus. We're calling upon you, Lord Jesus. We're praying for every person in this room this morning that needs a financial breakthrough of some kind. Back is against the wall, not sure where the next meal is coming from. We say, come Lord Jesus. Say aloud, church. Come, Lord Jesus, and we pray for all of the breakdown and the devastation of our world. We pray over Gaza. We pray over Israel. We pray over Western Africa. We pray over the Ukraine. We say, come, Lord Jesus. This world belongs to you. The nations of the earth belong to you. And so we ask, we're asking that you wouldn't just wait until the end of history to make things right, but we pray, come in the spirit and come in the power now and begin to make things right. Church, let's sing it again together. Come on.
Let's sing it in faith. You find us when there is no way you make a way. Where no one else can reach us. You find us. Jesus. 
Go ahead and take the hand of the person next to you. What a cry. What a cry. I say when I come to church, the thing that I'm looking for is not that we say the right words or sing the right songs or do the right stuff, but it's that spirit would touch spirit, that our heart would touch the heart of God, that his heart would touch us. And that's already happening this morning. So we're lifting up our cry to the Lord. And so now, church, I just want to invite you to pray the way that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Let's pray together. Say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. If you agree with that, church, give God praise real loud this morning. Amen. Amen. Man, it's so good to see all of your lovely faces. Lots of Christmas colors here this morning. We got some red Christmas blazers looking good. Becky, looking good. Christy Adamson. Um, uh, if you're new with us this morning, great to have you. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you in our house. Uh, we'd love to meet you in Connect Central after the service. We have got a gift for you. Any questions that you have, we could... Uh, happily answer for you. Three quick announcements for you. Uh, remember the amount, announcement that we made last week. New Life East is going to be moving from Grand Peak Academy to Rocky Mountain Classical Academy starting Sunday, February 4th. It's a big thing for us. Huge answer to prayer. We're thanking God for that. So just mark that in your calendars. And then as details come up over the next six weeks, we'll keep you posted on all that. Remember also next Sunday is Christmas Eve. We will not be here in the morning. So no service in the morning. We'll have family services, two of them at 2 o'clock and at 4 o'clock. So family service means everybody, adults and kids, right here together. And we're going to sing some traditional Christmas carols, read the Christmas story. I'm going to preach a little bit. We'll light candles, come to the table. It's going to be great. So uh, make sure to come with your family. Bring like 17 friends. Let's pack this place out. It's going to be great. And then last thing, uh, as we end the year here, we've got uh, a student's hangout, Christmas hangout happening this Thursday night from 6 to 8 p.m. So if you've got a middle schooler or a high schooler, or if you know a middle schooler or a high schooler, uh, make sure they sign up for that again. That's this Thursday night, 6 to 8 p.m. Okay, that's all I've got for you. Rory's gonna open the word in a second, turn around and greet a whole bunch of people, give them some grace and peace and love, and we'll open the scriptures here in just a moment. Good morning, New Life East. You can take a seat after you said hi to all of the people that you love and ignored all the people you don't love as much. <laughs> see, I just, I just call it like I see it. I know how it works. 
It's church, but we're still people. Um, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 61 today. Um, we are in week three of Advent around here at New Life East. And uh, Advent is a little bit different this year because it lands, week four lands on Christmas Eve. So like week four, Christmas Eve, all that's going to be handled next week. But we are in Isaiah chapter 61 today, verses one through seven for week number three of Advent. This is what is written in the book of Isaiah. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair." They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God, and you will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast." Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting, what's it say? Joy will be yours. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Let's pray. And everlasting joy will be yours. That is what you say about us. So God, we pray that today as we dive into this text, into these scriptures, that your spirit would speak to us as it always does. And that the prayer that we've been praying since 9.15 this morning at Grand Peak Academy would be the same. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, would we see you in these scriptures? Would we see you in the midst of our lives? Would we have a sense that your presence is with us even now and that in that awareness, some amount of joy would become tangible for us. Some amount of joy would become real in our lives. Those of us who are sitting in here waiting and waiting and waiting to see the goodness of the Lord. You tell us, we will see it. We will see it. But we pray, come Lord Jesus in our lives this very day. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So Advent, as we've been talking about, is this, uh, it's the season, it's a peculiar season in the life of the church. We said that it's a season that's marked by waiting, primarily waiting in adverse circumstances that we can find ourselves here in real, in, in modern day, sort of, sort of longing and hoping that God would show up in our world, but we're waiting patiently for that to happen, but we wait with some amount of confidence because we know that our God is the kind of God who shows up in the midst of our lives. He's done it once in human history through the person of Jesus, and he promises to do it again in the second coming of Jesus. But as Andrew said so eloquently last week, we don't wait just sort of passively for God to show up. We actually sort of join in 
with him in his second coming, in his presence in our lives, we both pray and we repent of all the places that things have gone sideways. And it's somehow through all of that that we believe we will one day see like God in the midst of our circumstances face to face. We will recognize his presence. And as I was preparing to teach this weekend, I began to think just sort of the logic that we've walked us through in Advent season this year. And I think if, you know, the things we've said in the first two weeks are true, there's an inevitable question that sort of shows up, which is if we're waiting for God and if we're, you know, sort of partnering with him for his presence to be made real in our lives, the question ought to be, well, how will we know when he shows up? Like, how will we know that God has broken into our world and is somehow in the midst of it? How will we know when God shows up, when he finally arrives in our world? You think about the context of Isaiah here. I said this in week one, but the world in which Isaiah is written is a world of complete and utter chaos. God's people, Israel, Judah, it's a divided kingdom. Some of them have been exiled into places that are completely foreign lands for them. There's war going on. There's social chaos unfolding. The rich have become really rich and the poor have become really poor and the poor have been completely forgotten about. Violence has broken out among them. They are living in a world where they need God to do something. They need God to step in. They have not been able to piece this all back together. And Isaiah is writing this prophetic vision of what will one day happen when the sovereign Lord steps in as what he seems to frame as this Messiah figure, this suffering servant. And what's interesting about Isaiah, the way that it's written is verse in chapter 60, you can see Isaiah, his pen is going crazy. He is writing about what this day will one day look like. And then 61 hits and the narration style changes. It's as if Isaiah is no longer just writing about what might happen, but it's like a new voice has inserted itself. It's not Isaiah's voice. It's the voice of what we can only imagine to be the Messiah who is now speaking about what will happen when he shows up. And evidently what will happen when that Messiah shows up, well, the spirit will be upon him. The poor will receive good news. The brokenhearted will find healing and comfort. Those whose lives have been ripped apart, it will be put back together. The captives and the prisoners will receive freedom. The ashamed will find security and dignity. And those who look around at nothing but ruins will see that their world is being put back together. Can I get an amen of what that will one day look like? According to this voice in Isaiah, this is what the world will look like when God begins to intervene. You might hear all those descriptors. The poor the brokenhearted, the ashamed, the beaten down, the people who look around and they quite literally see ruins in their lives and you might start to think about your own life. That you hear those descriptors and poor doesn't even begin to cut it. Like poor would be an honoring title to hold right now. You look at your finances and things are not quite where you wish they were. You look at ashamed and man, you've been walking around for a while with your head just down. So what this means, we've said this throughout this whole service, which is beautiful the way God does things, is that we're not just waiting for God to break into our lives someday way out in the future, but what is true about Advent is that God is able to break into those moments for us right here and right now. I think the way to answer the question of how will we know that God is like breaking into our circumstances, I think it would be to say this, we know that God has arrived in our world when all of the wrongs begin to be made right. When all of the wrongs that we see in our lives and in our world begin to be made right, they may not be completely solved in this moment, but we know that God has shown up because all of those wrongs 
are starting to be made right. The first thing that I recognize in this text, though, about how those wrongs are made right is this, is that when God arrives in our world, he resets all of the wrongs that we've initiated. He resets all the wrongs that we have initiated. You look at this text, the way that Isaiah starts it, the way that this narrator begins it, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom. Everyone say freedom. Freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And this is what I want you to catch. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. That phrase, the day of the Lord, is meant to draw you back to this thing that exists in the book of Leviticus. It existed and God's people are sort of fragmented. They found freedom from Egypt, but they're wandering. And God sort of comes along to try to create some I don't know, how would you say it? Some guardrails for their lives. He gives them the Ten Commandments, but he gives them all sorts of other things to sort of walk by. And one of the things that is presented to them is a calendar, a way to sort of live and recognize God's saving power in their lives. And one of the things that is presented to them is that every seven Sabbath years, which is essentially every 50 years, there will be a year of jubilee, a year of joy, a year where all of the wrongs that have been committed are sort of like wiped off the deck. A year where people who have been enslaved are set free. A year where the outsider who has been rejected by God's people, which they weren't supposed to do in the first place, but here we are, are allowed to find dignity and freedom all again. It's a year where freedom reigns in the community of God's people. A quote by a theologian, an Indian pastor and theologian, his name C.B. Samuel, he says this about the year of Jubilee. He says, Jubilee was a recovery of identity, especially for the poor. It's not about simply correcting economic problems, which is very important. It's not even just caring for the poor because they're poor, but it is restoring identity, which is a part of their history, and it's very important to them. Jubilee operated as a corrective because people were tight-fisted and hard-hearted. The year of Jubilee wasn't just this economic reset. It wasn't just a cultural reset. It wasn't even just a like, we're going to put all these little things back. It was a full clearing the deck of all the ways that people had gotten things wrong. I love the way he says that because people are hard-hearted and tight-fisted. I'm so glad none of us are like that anymore. We know that God is arriving in our world because what he starts to do is put back together all the pieces of the things that we have gotten wrong. So whatever this Messiah figure is presenting in Isaiah is that whatever, whenever God shows up in our lives, what it looks like is the year of Jubilee, except the year never stops. It just keeps coming. So grace just keeps flowing out. Forgiveness just keeps flowing out. This massive reset of every way that we can wrong one another just gets reset. And we are pretty good at wronging one another. We're really good at going to war with our brothers and sisters. We're really good at spewing hatred about those that we love. And we're even better about spewing hatred about those whom we hate. We're really good at letting our relationships get completely sideways. We're really good at letting deep personal sin live and dwell in our lives. We're really good at letting things go sideways. But whatever is going to happen when the Lord shows up, and breaks into our world is that the year of Jubilee, well, all that resetting, all that clearing of the deck, man, it just keeps going on and on and on. I can remember a few years ago, I was, not a few years ago, man, this was 10, 12 years ago. 
It was my first job as a pastor. I was 20 years old. I should not have been allowed to be a pastor, but I was. And they also thought I was qualified to work with students, which was a bad decision as well. But this summer, we were, I was taking about 30 kids on a mission trip, and we were using the church vans. You know churches that had church vans, and like only a few select people could drive. It was like a lucrative club if you could drive the church van. All it really meant is you were over like 20 and you had insurance or whatever. That's all it was. But it was a big deal. So I remember like getting stuff ready. I was at the church. I was just, there was a Sunday afternoon. No one was there. I'm like getting stuff loaded in these vans. And, um, you know, s- silly me, I lock the keys to the church vans inside like the church building, which I now don't have the keys for either because it's inside the building. And so I, um, I go around the back. I get, I get into my office. I get the keys. I come back around to the front. And under the, like, overhang of this church is just a body laying on the concrete. And I don't know if you've ever just wandered across a body laying in the road. But a million thoughts fire off in about a matter of ten seconds. And you're rehashing every movie you've ever seen where they find a body. And you're trying to think, what would Liam Neeson do in this moment? And I would love to tell you I was that brave and just walked up to it. I immediately walked back around the back of the building and was like, I got to hide somewhere. I don't know what's going on here. What is happening? I'm, think, I'm trying to think, would a friend prank me like this and just come and lay like a dead body? And I eventually get up enough courage. I go out to the front and this body has like shifted. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> they're alive. <laughs> Check number one. So I go up to it. I sort of like sh- shake. I'm like, hey, I, what, who are you? What is happening? This guy rolls over, and I can pretty quickly tell that he's either, like, drunk out of his mind or he is, um, he's on some sort of, like, substance. And he is he's completely whacked out. He can barely open his eyes. He's got a black hoodie on. His hood is up. And I ask him, I'm like, man, what's your, what's your name? And he kind of, like, mumbles through. He says his name's Clint. I go, okay, Clint, why are you here? Beyond obvious reasons, but why are you here? He begins to tell me through, you know, what took 30 minutes for him to get it out was that his family went to our church. And he, as a young kid, had gone to our church. He starts asking for pastors who had been there 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I'm like, man, none of them are here. I'm the only pastor here. Like, I know it's not much, but this is what I've got right now. And he goes, man, um, I'm overdosing. I go, yeah, we can tell. He goes can you take me to the hospital, but please don't call the cops? And I go, why, why don't you want me to call the cops? And I noticed that maybe 25 feet away from him is this red backpack. And he goes, can you dispose of my backpack? Now, hold on here. Any of you affiliated with law enforcement or just have common sense, you're going to be mad at the way this story is going to unfold. I'm just letting you know. So I, I stand there for a moment. I, I pull one of the church vans around because I wasn't putting him in my car. And I put him in the church van. I get him to lay down. And I go, hey, man, give me a minute. So I, like, I go stand and I open his backpack. And I had a colorful high school life. So I open it and I recognize pretty quickly that what is in his bag is like a portable meth lab. I realize the reason he doesn't want anyone to see this bag is it's bad enough to go into the hospital with an overdose because they know you've used drugs. And if the hospital chooses to call the police, you can get in trouble. But if you show up with a bag like that, you're not just going to get in trouble for using drugs. You're going to get in trouble and charged with intent to create and to distribute. 
again, colorful high school life. So I look at him and I go, I'm going to make a deal with you. I don't know what I'm going to do with that bag yet, but I'll take you to the hospital. Take him to the hospital, sit there for a couple hours. I come back. I'm like, man, I can't, I'm not putting this in my car and disposing it somewhere that I know I could dispose it. I'm not, I, I can't put this in the church dumpster. Like, I'm not doing that. Um, but I did think about it. I was like, I could just throw this here. No one would know. So I end up calling the police. And I, I just sort of plead ignorance. I'm like, hey, this bag's here, whatever. They, t- they do a whole thing. They take it away. Life goes on. I don't think about this story again, except that it haunts me the whole mission trip, which I thought going on a trip with high school kids would be the worst part of this, but I, whatever, just deal with this situation. A couple years later, I get a, I get a, a DM on Facebook from this kid named Clint. And all he says is, thank you. I was like, I did absolutely nothing to help you out, man. He evidently went to jail for two years, was released from jail, and as I click on his profile, I see that for the first time in like 10 years, he is celebrating Christmas in his home with his family, clean, sober, because he went to jail, because he got cleaned up, like his life had gotten put back together, grace upon grace upon grace, freedom upon freedom upon freedom. And you know the pastor way to tell that story is to stop right there. But I knew I was going to tell that story this week, so I looked him up. He's back in jail. Substance abuse, violating his parole. And I was like, I can't tell this story now. And it was as if God hit me like a brick wall and said, but isn't that the point? Like it's freedom upon freedom upon freedom. It's grace upon grace upon grace. One of the phrases that's used in the year of Jubilee passage in Leviticus, every time they talk about who will find freedom, there's this phrase that's used, you have a right to a redeemed life. That's true of him. And that's true of you. Because what I know to be true is that there are people who sit in this room and you haven't messed up once. You haven't even messed up twice. Twice would be great. You could deal with twice. You're in the middle of a life where you keep messing up. Your closest loved ones don't even know. I don't even know. But when you hear the idea that what God can do when he shows up in your world is redeem it and put it back together, restore all the places that you've messed it up, you just don't believe it. But what the year of Jubilee is, what the sign that the Messiah is showing up in our midst, that God is like pressing into our world, it's that grace upon grace upon grace just keeps being poured out. Reset upon reset upon reset. Forgiveness is available for you. Redemption is available for you. You have the right to a redeemed life. You may be waiting in the midst of Advent, but what you're waiting for is you're just waiting for God to like fix you. He says you have the right to a redeemed life. But I'm not naive to think that the only way the world gets messed up is through our own mess-ups. If Isaiah is clear about anything, it's that a lot of the times the way that our world falls apart is because there are things that just happen to us. Things that are outside of our circumstances, things we can't control. To say it maybe a little bit clearer would be to say it this way. When God arrives in our world, what he also does is he resets all the wrongs that have been enacted upon us. 
all the abuse, all the violence, all the hatred, all the gospel, all the gossip, he resets it. I think about the way Isaiah says this. He says, he comes to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And then what does he do? Well, he takes them and he bestows on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. He pours the oil of joy upon them instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. What I think is interesting about what Isaiah is talking about is that when God shows up, he doesn't like, he doesn't make the wrongs disappear, but he changes the person who has been wronged. He takes your hand and he like, for the lack of a better word, he gives, he gives those who are mourning a complete makeover. Those who have been physically broken down, he says, we're going to, we're going to change everything about your life. We're going to pick you up out of the dirt. And we're going to put a crown upon your head. And can I tell you what, I don't have some like clever story to prove to you that it is true that he does this. But what I see happening in Isaiah is that if the people who are reading this are sitting exiled in foreign countries, locked up in cages, wondering if God even cares about them, what Isaiah is making clear to them is God just promises that it will happen. Someday. It will happen. I can't tell you when your mourning will cease, but it will happen. I can't tell you when the person who has harmed and abused you will find justice and you will feel okay about it, but it will happen. I can't tell you when the shame that you are carrying around and burdened by will be eradicated from your life and you will be able to stand up. I can't tell you when it will happen, but the promise of this is simply that it will. And for some of you, that's all you need right now. You just need to trust that it will because God has never bailed on one of his promises. God has never looked at you and said, hey, you're mourning, I'll fix it, and then left you completely alone. God has never, God has never not come through on what he said he will do. And for the people of God, the way that we find joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of fragmented life, is that we believe that there is something guaranteed to be better on the other side of it. That we somehow don't have to walk around with our heads down, that oil can be poured upon our heads and we can stand tall. That we don't have to sit in the dirt, that we can somehow, God will pick us up out of it, put new clothes on us, put, put us into a different situation. I can't tell you how it will happen, when it will happen. All I can tell you is that the way God has shown himself throughout human history is that it will happen. It just will. And the way that I know it will is that Isaiah seems to have this picture that when God intervenes in our world, the people whom have been wronged the people then who are touched by his goodness and his grace, they just look differently. Something about them starts to change. Their identities begin to be recaptured. Their, their joy begins to come back to them. They're, they begin to stand up straight. Their shame is replaced with honor. That phrase that your shame will be removed and replaced with something double, it's not double shame, it's double honor. I love the way that he says this. 
It says, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. And the descriptors that Isaiah uses to describe that says that everything about those who were once wrong will change. It would be to say it this way, that when God arrives in our world, he doesn't just correct all of it. In fact, what he does is he invites us to become those who right wrongs in the world. He changes something about us and invites us to become the people who start to transform the world around us as well. Think about how he says it all throughout this passage. But he says, they will be called oaks of righteousness. You are sturdy. You are strong. You are no longer the poor who were, was just longing for good news. Your back is, is straight. Your chest is out. You are in good shape. And you stand for righteousness. All those places where you had gotten things wrong, those things have been removed from you. And you're no longer called by them. You're not oaks of once were guilty. You're oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then this is what those people do. They rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called what? Priests. Who gets called priests in the vision of the Messiah coming? The very same people whose lives were completely fractured. So if you sit in here today and you're like, this is all nice and sweet, but my life is like really messed up. I don't know. You might be a lead priest then. It's the way it looks. That your life, while it was once fractured and distraught, that you were once in mourning, you were once poor, your life gets put back together. And you don't just get put back together for the sake of like neutrality. You get put back together to become a priest and you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. The picture of what happens when God shows up in our world is that you begin to become someone who is completely different and you help right the wrongs of our world. I thought about a man who, when we lived in Dallas-Fort Worth, he started coming to our church. His name was Benny. And Benny, he showed up to our church uh, on his second marriage. And he had older kids from his first marriage, but he had these two little seven and eight-year-olds from his second marriage. And uh, Benny showed up to our church, and I got to know Benny a little bit. And Benny told me the reason he showed up to our church was about a year prior, his seven and eight-year-old girls came into the living room with him, and they said, Dad, um, we'd really like it if you stopped drinking. Can you imagine that? Seven-year-old, eight-year-old girls, what courage and bravery to walk into the room with their dad. Say, we really like it if you stop drinking. We're afraid you won't be around for much longer. Benny's wrecked. His heart in shambles. So what does Benny do? Well, Benny finds a local AA meeting, and Benny starts going to AA as consistently as he can. Month after month, sobriety, sobriety. Man, Benny's crushing it. Benny shows up at our church about a year later because he realizes... He needs some sort of like higher power to walk with him in life. And so Benny, he had grown up around church, but wouldn't necessarily call himself a Christian at the time. And Benny shows up and this is not a plug for Rooted, but I can't help but do this. The first Sunday Benny shows up was a Sunday that we had opened registrations for this discipleship experience called Rooted. Some of you have heard of it. And Benny signs up for it. And Benny's a year into his sobriety, and man, Benny is like coming to know Jesus left and right, man. He is, his life is being shaped, 
and shifted by it. And all of a sudden, we have a celebration. Benny gets baptized at the celebration, and it is a beautiful thing. But what becomes even more beautiful is that Benny, on the night of the celebration, he came to me and he goes, hey, um, he's like dripping wet, just got out of a baptism tank. And he said, hey, can I lead a rooted group? And I go, yeah, man, absolutely. I, I, this is the interview process. I guess you're in. And when you know it, Benny starts leading this group. And all of a sudden in his group, this guy named Scotty shows up. And Scotty was a well-known guy around town. But Scotty had shown up because Scotty had very publicly humiliated himself, flipped his wife's Jaguar on the highway right in front of our church one night driving because he was intoxicated. So Scotty showed up to church just going, man, I have to find some way to get my life put back together. So you know what Benny does, right? Because Benny's already had his life touched by the God of the universe. Like Benny's already seen what it looks like for God to break into his world and happened to, <laughs> it happened to him through a seven and eight year old girl. Benny starts driving Scotty to every AA meeting he can. Benny starts sitting with Scotty and talking about Jesus and wrestling through his questions. Benny years later now runs his own business and Benny almost exclusively employs those who are wrestling with addiction and striving for sobriety. And his life's goal, he'll tell you this, is to create a place where the people who need safe space to work can find it. Benny has turned his whole life into a life of someone who has been touched by the God of the universe. He's seen God break into his world. And so what he's gonna do with the rest of his life is help right the wrongs that keep unfolding around him. This is what we do to church. We recognize that God has broken into our lives. Maybe he's doing it even right here in this moment. He's presenting to you the places where you have gotten things out of whack. He's presenting to you where things have been done that are wrong to you. And he just promises that he will show up. But what he is doing with all of us is changing us from the people whose heads are down to the people who are oaks of righteousness, who will stand in the space of the world and be the ones who help form it back to exactly what God has for it. I have time. Um, what's powerful about this passage in Isaiah 61 is that there's a little baby who's gonna be born a few hundred years after this. And that baby, we know him by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus has a moment in the Gospel of Luke where he walks into the temple says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him had spread throughout the whole countryside. Good news? Probably good news. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue. As was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were, were fastened on him. 
And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I read that to simply say, how do we know when God has shown up in our world? It's easy, it looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. New Life East, would you stand this morning? It always looks like Jesus. It always looks like Jesus coming to us and confronting the places of our lives that are just out of whack. It always looks like Jesus coming to you in the places of your deepest mourning and darkness and being the great comforter to you. It always looks like Jesus transforming us to look more like him. It's always Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It's as much him in the scroll of Isaiah as it is him the night that he was betrayed when he took bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And every time you eat, would you eat in remembrance of me? It's as much him as the night that he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's poured out to make all the wrongs of our world right again, to begin the process of restoring all of those pieces. And every time you drink, would you do so in remembrance of me? I wanna invite our communion servers to come forward this morning. We're gonna form two aisles down the center aisle. When you come up, they'll serve you a wafer, a wafer that represents Jesus's body, which is broken for you. You'll then take that and you'll dip it into the cup, which represents Jesus's shed blood for you. Let me pray over us this morning and then I'll invite us forward. God, there are, there, are, there are moments in church where we, we just know what you're saying to us. I think this morning you just want us to look at Jesus. And so we do that. Church, I don't know what images of Jesus pop into your mind, but I, I wanna invite you, would you look at him this morning? Would you see him? He is the one whom is written about in Isaiah as the coming servant and Messiah for you. He is the one who heals the blind, helps the crippled walk, calls out blessings among the poor. And he is the one who is longing to still do that in your life right now. to receive communion. Old things have passed away But your love has stayed the same And your constant grace remains the cornerstone Shine on top.
his name I pray for you every single day in New Life East. And I, this is what I pray for you. I always pray that your roots would go down deep into the soil of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would know the love of the Father. And I pray that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit, making manifest the works of the Father to the praise of his name. And this morning we heard a message from Rory that to me feels like a prophetic word over our church, what God has called us to on the east side of the city is that somehow we would be transformed by the love of God so that we can transform the world with the love of God. And I I was thinking as you all were walking through the communion line, I was thinking about a great theologian of the last century who said that what happens at the table of the Lord is like a nuclear reaction, that there is this explosion of the love of God that happens at the table And then it just ramifies out into the world, world without end. And that represents the highest thing that I could ever hope for you, New Life East, is that somehow you'd be swept away by the love of God and that we would know that together so that the world would know it, so that the east side of the city would be changed. And so would you just lift your hands like this? Jesus, we welcome again the work of the Spirit. Just say, church, would you just say, come Holy Spirit? We welcome again the work of the Spirit. We pray, Spirit, that you would, that you would reach down deeper into us. That your work would go down deeper into us, into places that we didn't even know existed. We pray that all the doors that we've locked keep others out, to keep you out. We pray that you'd sneak behind our defenses and open those doors up. We pray, Jesus, you said that if your eye was single, your whole body would be full of light. I pray that every person who calls New Life East home, I pray that their eye would be single, that it'd be for you, and that our whole bodies would be full of light, no darkness, no guile, no divided heart, but single for you, and so do it in us. New Life East over you this morning, I pray, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our prayer ministry team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything this morning, we would love to pray with you. Remember to see us at Connect Central. If you're brand new here, we would love to meet you. Coffee and donuts. 
uh, for fellowship hour after the service here. You are loved, New Life East. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you Sunday, 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock right here.